All right. Uh, so as I mentioned earlier, uh, today what we're doing is kind of celebrating a little bit of, of what God's doing in the church through uh, the mission team and, and the opportunities that we have there. Um, if you're not kind of familiar with uh, how we do mission trips and so forth, uh, we've really had a couple different experiences. But this particular one, uh, what we did is we partner with two organizations. Um, one is Trash Mountain Project. They're on this side uh, here in the States, and they organize a lot of these trips and all of that kind of stuff. And then uh, down in Honduras is an organization called AFE, and I'm not going to do the Spanish so because uh, I'll totally mess it up. But it's a school. Uh, they have a seminary there now. Um, just basically they're or- what they do is they try to rescue people from this trash dump community and provide schooling and education and all of that stuff, and just a great phenomenal organization. And so those are kind of our two partners, and they're the ones that identify the family that we're going to build a home for and so forth. And this is actually, this was the ninth home that we've built down in there rescuing families from these trash dump communities. And so uh, we're really excited about that. And so we're going to hear a little bit from some of the team members, and we're going to start down here with Clayton. This is Clayton Keene. And um, Clayton, this was kind of, this was your first time really kind of seeing the this, uh, the trash dump, you know, the poverty of these trash dump communities firsthand. Tell us a little bit about that experience for you. Well, um, going up there, you know, seeing the pictures and seeing the videos, but until, you know, I actually went, we went up on the trash dump and seeing, you know, the hundreds of thousands of people rummaging through the trash, it, it really sunk in of, of how, how bad it is, you know, how the poverty is where they got to dig through and find anything they can to recycle. I mean, the people were, every garbage truck to come in, there would be 50 people around it just waiting for the trash to hit the ground so they can go through it. So, you know, we were going up there, and um, the people lined up because we started feeding them and giving them water, but a lot of them didn't even want the food. I mean, they were so hungry, but they just wanted the water because it was just so hot up there. Mm-hmm. But, you know, watching them line up and then a trash truck come in, they would get out of the line for the food and the water just to go to the trash dump, the other truck, so they could go through and see exactly what they could find so they could make the money for their families. Wow. Wow. Well, while you were there on, on the trash dump, you got to meet Antonio, who is the father of this family that you are about to build a home for. And as a father yourself, just tell us a little bit about that experience, about meeting him and what, what that first impression was like. Well, uh, when we first saw Antonio, we was, you know, we handed out most of the food and we still had some left. And we was walking through trying to, you know, get people to get, make sure they had the food and water. And we'd seen him off in the distance. He was walking through and actually thought he was somebody part of Alfay. The way he carried himself, um, had his held up, head up high, he had a Bible on his side, and then he come up and talked to us, you know, before and he started telling the story before he realized who he was. I, like I said, I thought he was someone there because just because the way he presented himself, but he's out there working in the trash dump every day, provide for his family, and yet, he, I mean, he still has and, and the dignity in him. And he knows he's had a hard life, he's got it rough, but he's a God, you could tell he was a, a godly man. Okay. Now, Michael, um, this, by the way, this is Michael Matthews. Um, he was one of the other team members that went. Um, Michael, the experience of meeting Antonio was probably most emotional for you. Um, in fact, I even remember you telling me this story uh, personally. Um, tell us a little bit about what struck you about, you know, meeting Antonio for the first time and just how, why that struck you so strongly. Yeah, so like Clayton said, Antonio was, um, he, he, he was just immediately, he was different from everybody else on the trash dump. He'd been up there for 25 years, making about $2 a day and working as hard as he can. And and the first thing that struck me is here's a dad and a husband 
who hasn't given up. And, and here in the States, you know, that guy had been gone in a heartbeat and, and, and gone off and, and probably done it two or three other times with two or three other women and kids and everything else. And, and, and Antonio didn't. Antonio stayed, and he was a godly man. Um, but the big thing, so that was, that was the one thing, because I was there with, with my son, and, and so it, it, it impacted me probably a little bit more um, because here's a dad standing up for his family. But the other thing that impacted me was he had, he had a faith like I had never seen. Um, like I say, he's making about two bucks a day on average, and he was praying that God would bring him a, give him the material to build a house. Uh, and quick math would say it would take him about five years if he spent his $2 on nothing else. It would take him about five years to, to buy the material. And, and he was praying that God was going to give it to him mm-hmm. and never stopped. And his wife had said, you know, I don't know. You know, maybe we just improve where we are. And um, his daughter says, Dad, I don't know if it's going to happen. He said, no, God will do this. So he had this big audacious prayer that God was going to give him something that, was, that would seem virtually impossible, greater faith than I have, because mm-hmm. that would be the equivalent of God giving us a $250,000 home, giving, not letting you get the loan for, but giving you a $250,000. So that was what impacted me the most. One, he was a dad that didn't give up. And he was a Christian that didn't give up. Mm-hmm. So those were the two things that got me the most about so Antonio. So not only did he sin, did God provide the building materials, but then he even provided somebody to, to Yeah, build he, he provided the labor too. And, <laughs> yeah. and he said, he told us, he said, you know, I really believe God sent you guys to answer. You, got, you were the answer to my prayer. You were God's answer to my prayer. Wow. wow. So you, you mentioned that you had the opportunity to take your son with you, um, Josh. Um, tell us a little bit about why that was so important to you and, and what that experience was like. Yeah, so it was Josh's idea. Um, we, had, we had always given to missions, mm-hmm. and, and Jenny and I had talked about going, but, you know, you have kids, and then you wonder, well, what happens if, if we both go and something happens and, you know, all of that. And we'd always found an excuse, mm-hmm. a reason not to go. And Josh came up and said, yeah, I always found an excuse or a reason not to go. And... Um, Josh came and said, I think I'd like to go on a mission trip this year. So uh, I, there, there went my excuse because one of us had to go with it. So, um, and, and I wanted to take the opportunity because, you know, he's, he just turned 12. He turned 12 the week after we got back. And at 13, 14, 15, he may not want to go. He may not want to do this again. So, you know, take the opportunity while we have it. But uh, so one reason was that we get to spend a, a, an, a, an opportunity that, will never, this is, you know, a great opportunity mm-hmm. with my son. Um, the other thing is Josh is one of the, the sweetest, kindest, most compassionate kids that I know. And um, so th- this trip had the chance to affect me, but it had the chance to completely change his life. Mm-hmm. And so that was the other reason that it was so important mm-hmm. for us. Well, um, this is Callie Matola, uh, and... Uh, um, so, Callie, you guys, you guys got there on Saturday, um, you know, kind of get organized, do church on Sunday. I think the plan was to actually start building on Tuesday, but you got there on Monday, started building. When did it kind of all hit you that, hey, I'm in Honduras, and I'm here to build this home for this family? Um, it started to sink in for me whenever we were seeing the family at the site where we were building their house. Like, I knew we were in Honduras, and I knew we were building a house, but it never really, like, was a reality to me that somebody would be living there, that that would be their home, and that was really what, like, 
made it real for me, being able to see that we weren't just there, like, putting up four walls and a roof. We were building a home for somebody to live in. Cool. Um, now, you were, you're relatively new to Ridgepoint, and, um, you know, didn't know a lot of people, and so, you know, going, first of all, when, when did it kind of hit you that, you know, I, I need to go on this trip, and second of all, what, what was the experience like, like getting to know people on the trip, and, and what was that like for you? Well, I knew I wanted to go on the trip as soon as it was announced. And I looked over at my mom, and I told her that I was going. (laughs) (laughs) And she was like, okay, well, we'll see if we can make that happen. And I ended up being able to raise all the money to go, and that was, like, a blessing from God. So I knew that I was supposed to go. Mm -hmm. And we had been attending church, like, two weeks when it was announced. (laughs) Um, So getting to know everybody was, like, a lot easier than I thought it was going to be. I've been on other trips before with groups of Christians and, like, friends, and there's always somebody that's alienated Mm -hmm. or cliques that start to form, and there wasn't any of that. Everybody Mm -hmm. was just accepted right away and part of the team. Mm -hmm. And I got to hear, like, everyone talk about their experiences Mm. at night after we were done working and things like that and that helped me like learn about them and be able to see them as spiritual leaders in my life and friends cool okay um we're gonna finish up with belinda here this is belinda wrestle belinda's been on several of our trips and um you know you guys kind of got to finish up your work early um and you after that, you got the chance to go spend some time at the school at Afe. Um, tell us a little bit about, you know, a, as a teacher yourself, what, what was that experience like? And um, just, you know, interacting with the kids and all of that. Well, um, finishing early. Yay, we did. <laughs> well, um, Tanya also works with the kids in back. So we kind of looked at each other like, whoa, we're not prepared to go to Afe because usually we would have you know, books or games or something. So we just ended up winging it. Um, we got to tell them a story about Zacchaeus, you know, and we ended up teaching everybody, me, Callie, and Latanya, found this uh, song on YouTube, you know, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Y'all know it. Well, we made all the guys do it with us. So we acted it out and um, did it for the kids. And the little ones, they thought it was hilarious. And then the older ones were just kind of like, they're speaking in English, learn some Spanish. So we're going to have to work on that. Um, And then also we got to act out that whole story and um, really just kind of teach them a, a different way of saying, you can mess up in the world just like Zacchaeus, but God's going to be there and protect you no matter what. And um, after we did that, we played games with them. They were killing us at soccer (laughs) and wiffle ball. Um, And the smiles on their face was just priceless. It was kind of like Santa Claus coming into town. Um, You just can't replace it. So it was wonderful. And to see that they had gone from teaching on the trash dump literally having tires and then going down underneath trees you know one tree was kindergarten one tree was first grade and then these massive two-story buildings um that really god provided for them because there was no way that they were ever gonna be able to have that um was amazing so really awesome now every trip um again you know 
you've been on a lot of these trips. It, it seems like we, you know, we get to be a blessing to whatever family that we're building a home for or, or whatever the situation is. But in the end, it's really the, the team itself that gets the greatest blessing. So tell us a little bit about how you saw that this time and, and kind of what your experience was like this time. Um, so we, we go down there and we kind of all know, okay, we're supposed to build this home for this family. So we just kind of get into this routine. You know, everybody gets into their own routine. And then all of a sudden, boom, something happens. And it was kind of like Wednesday, the wood, if you've ever built a home or done anything, wood's normally straight <laughs> and it cooperates. Well, the wood was completely bent, crooked. Um, it just wasn't fitting for us. So um, I told everybody this Bible verse that I had you know, memorized to kind of prepare me for the trip. And it is Ephesians 6, 7. It says, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. And so when I said that, I think everybody just kind of realized, okay, yeah, we're not here to build this home for these people. We're here because Antonio prayed this audacious prayer and he said, God, you know, he didn't say, God, send Ridgepoint Church. I want that person, that person, that person. He said, God, build me a home. And we were the people, you know, that built it for God. And um, when he, uh, throughout the week, you know, things had happened before, you know, being able to raise the money. I mean, geez, one of our members had a stroke and we heard that story last week. And, you know, praise God that he was able to go because, you know, that's just, so Satan was on us all the way through and, you know, knowing that we were there because God called us to be there, you know, was the greatest blessing of all. And, and, um, Thursday, the confirmation of that was Antonio said, um, I had a dream last night and you all were dressed in white angels. Like God sent his angels to build us this home. And that was, that was the definite confirmation that, that definitely God sent us and Mm -hmm. we were there for him. All right. Well, thank you guys uh, for sharing. And, and uh, by all means, um, they would love to, you know, if you want to hear more, they'd love to talk about uh, their experiences. And you saw some pictures of some of the other people that went as well. And, and, and they'd love to talk to you about that. But um, I, I mentioned that, you know, today we're going to have a lot of things that you can, you can do with your particular card. Um, <clears throat> the thing that you can uh, do for the mission trip is this. Next summer, we're already beginning to uh, lay the groundwork for our plans for next summer. Uh, we actually already have on the books a trip planned for the Dominican Republic. Um, so we already, we've set dates, and, and we're already starting to work on that. But we're also talking to Trash Mountain about another trip uh, to Honduras, and we're working on working out the dates for that right now. But if, if you at all think that you might be interested in either trip or you just want to know more about it or whatever – And what you can do is, on the back of your card, down at the comments section, you can just write missions. And what we'll do is we'll add your name to our email list, and then as more information comes out, we'll contact you. We'll let you know those dates, um, what costs are going to look like, and all of that kind of stuff so that you can begin preparing now. Um, But um, like I said, it's a phenomenal experience. And so if you want to be a part of that, um, on your card, write missions, and uh, we'll be in touch with you about that. Um, so what I'm going to do right now, I'm going to pray, and uh, then we're going to actually uh, turn it over to JJ. 
We're going to answer a few more of those uh, pick six questions that we didn't get to. So, God, thank you so much for the opportunity, God, just to, to serve you and uh, to serve you in this way. Father, I pray that um, you would continue to uh, bless Antonio and his family. God, that you would continue to use them in that community. God, use this guy who has this audacious faith. God, use him to, um, uh, to spread your message and spread, um, God, the good news of who you are, Father. God, I pray that um, you would continue to allow us to do these kinds of things and let us be a part of them. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. All right, and good morning, Ridgepoint Church. I just want to echo what so much of the team uh, shared. Literally, uh, we tried to encapsulate in like 10 or 15 minutes what happened over a week. And, and the final night that we were there, we had a chance to debrief with, with team leaders and then to kind of talk about ex- our experiences. And it probably went on for a couple of hours, just sharing these stories. Uh, and I know it's hard to get a real picture if you weren't there. Uh, that's why we encourage you. Even if you think there's no way in the world I could ever go on a trip, I can't be away from the family that long. It's a lot of money. I'm really, like I get all of that stuff happening. We're all really busy. But I'd encourage you at least at one point in, in the future, consider going on one of the trips. It's really just a powerful experience to go and serve. But it's also a power, powerful experience as to what God does in your life and while you're on that trip, kind of getting away and getting focused on spiritual things for a week. We are wrapping up a, a, a series in, in a sor- certain sort of way. A couple weeks ago, we wrapped up Pick 6 in terms of the sermons that we had. And, and if you were with us all summer long, we had allowed you to, to contribute some questions. And you submit some questions online and, and, and via church. Just saying, what are some questions you have about the Bible and whatnot? And a lot of those fit into uh, a sermon where you could take a, a, a question or a couple of related questions. And say, let's talk about that for a full 35-minute message. And, but we started getting some questions that were like, well, there might not be a 35-minute message in that, but it's a really good question for us to answer. So we said, as we started getting some of those questions, before the series would be, even began, we said, we're going to do a final week that we're going to take all, if, if a pick six is scoring a touchdown, we're going to take all those extra questions and get the extra point at the end of the series. And so that's what we're doing today. And, and kind of what we anticipated, we thought these would be kind of simpler, easy to answer things. We'll kind of pop through those real quickly. And then something happened. If you've been paying attention to preseason football this year, they, they're doing something different. They, they moved the extra, where the kicker kicks the extra point from, they moved it back 15 yards to make it harder. As we started looking at some of these questions, I realized they're not as simple on the surface as they might have seen. So we're going to try to get through as many of these as possible. We still had a lot of questions kind of left over. So we're going to try to get through these as, as quickly as possible uh, this morning, and we'll get through what we can. And the first question, though, this is a doozy. This is going to be our longest one to answer. Why doesn't the Bible mention dinosaurs? <laughs> like I said, they moved, the, they moved the extra point line way back on this one. Why doesn't the Bible mention dinosaurs? And, and a lot of people have this question, and, and this is really a complicated question. Because underlying this question, throughout this series, there are two or three questions where we said there's a question at the surface, and there's a couple of other questions underneath the surface that are probably even a little bit bigger and a little bit hairier to answer. So really, kind of captured in this question what someone contributed to us. Um, uh, captured in this question is, is a couple of things. Because some people look at that and say, well, the Bible doesn't mention dinosaurs, and therefore, the, because there's this tension, especially the last couple hundred years, there's been a tension between science and the Bible. And if you pay attention to any of these things just out there in the world, you know there's this constant tension, and, and people, you know, certain scientists will look back and say, if you believe the Bible, you're crazy. And then uh, people who are, who are biblical scientists look and say, no, we believe the Bible matches up with, with science. And, and there's this tension that's always there. And, and so it goes to creation versus evolution. It goes to new, new earth versus old earth. There's a lot to this. 
Uh, a lot of scientists today believe the earth is 4.5 billion years old. Like that's kind of the common going. This is what a lot of scientists today say. In fact, just to confirm it, this morning I asked Siri. Siri, how old is, oh, and I went through my phone. Siri, how old is, is the earth? And, and Siri agrees, the earth is 4.5 billion years old. Um, and there are other people who are creation scientists who say we don't believe the earth is nearly that old. Uh, some say as little as 6,000 years, some say 12,000 years, but it's basically new earth versus old earth and, and creation versus evolution and, and what about dinosaurs. And where, so there's a lot in this question. Fortunately, this morning we don't have to answer all of that. <laughs> we can look at this one question because that's the one that's been contributed. I'd encourage you to study that out, figure this thing out, but we want to deal with a couple of those, those things real quick this morning. Why doesn't the Bible mention dinosaurs? And, and the first question I have is, are we sure it doesn't? You see, some of those people, and, and, and sometimes you hear things like, wait, I, I don't know about all that. And, and, and a lot of what we're going to talk about today, it's, it's, it's theory, it's, it's ideas people have. But a lot of the creation scientists, professors that I know, professors that I have a great respect for, believe that because the earth is a relatively new earth, that it was necessary for dinosaurs and man to coexist. Like, that would have been necessary. If we're going to live in a new earth, if the earth is only six to 12,000 years old, then, then it was necessary at some point for dinosaurs and, and man to coexist. Uh, now, studying some of their material, people like Answers in Genesis, and, and there's a lot of good material that's out there, they say it's, it, that man and, and dinosaur coexisted. And so if that's true, then we'd expect, and let's look at Scripture and find something. Now, there are, there are two instances we can look at. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to go to the book of Job right now. Job chapter 40 and Job chapter 41 we're going to look at. And, and at, before we begin this, let me say this. Uh, finding dinosaur fossils has only happened over the last couple hundred years. So prior to the last couple hundred years, there, there wasn't a name for dinosaurs. The name dinosaur is a relatively new name. It's a new term. Uh, so we turn to Job chapter 40 and Job chapter 41. And there's two different creatures that are mentioned. In Job chapter 40, it says this, picking up in verse 15. It says, Behold, behemoth. Now, behemoth, that sounds like a pretty big animal. Behold, behemoth, which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold, his strength is in his loins. His strength is in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs like bars of iron. And it goes on talking about this animal called behemoth. Now, some people look at that and say it's obvious from reading this that that's a giant creature. The terminology, the descriptors that are used in reference to this could very well describe a dinosaur. Do we know that absolutely? No. We, you, you can't say that. There's this animal, all we know is in Job, it's called behemoth. Uh, now, there are some interesting descriptors because I did a lot of studying. I, I studied uh, what science says. I studied what some certain Bible commentators say. And some Bible commentators say, I believe that's referring to a, a dinosaur. I think that's lesser of, of the two. But, but a lot of Bible commentators said, I believe that this particular animal here is referring to uh, a big animal, but probably more an elephant or a rhinoceros. Now, we can understand from our perspective, those animals are, are really big as well. And, and those seem to be the two prevailing ideas. So it was either an elephant or a, a hippopotamus, or a rhinoceros, or something like that. The thing is, and the only reason why, that seems like a prevailing thought, but the, when I read the descriptors, the one issue I have with that, and, and I probably side with them, the one issue I have with that is it actually talks about, he makes his tail stiff like a cedar. Like it sounds like a kind of a giant tail, something that's really, really impressive. As impressive as those bigger animals are, their tails aren't necessarily impressive. And so we, we read that, and we're like, all right, 
maybe that's, that's an interpretation of it, and we don't really know, and that's okay. Skip down real quick to Job chapter 41, because there's a second animal that's mentioned. Before I mention this animal, let me say this as well. Job is the oldest book written in the Bible. Uh, the Bible isn't laid out in chronological order in terms of when it was written. So Job is the oldest Bible book that was written. So this is the one that, that is, is the oldest that we have in Scripture. In Job chapter 41, verse 1, there's a second animal. Can you draw out Leviathan? If I was going to name a dinosaur, I'd go with the name Leviathan. Like, that just sounds impressive. I got attacked by Leviathan today. Like, that, that's a little more impressive. Uh, so there, there's this, can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook? Or press down his tongue with a cord? Can he put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Skip down. We can't read all this. This whole chapter is about Leviathan. Verse 10, it says, No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? Skip down to verse 25. When he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid. At the crashing, they are beside themselves. Though the sword reaches him, it does not avail. Nor the spear, the dart, or the javelin. He counts iron as straw and bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee, for, for him sling stones or turn to stubble. Clubs are counted as stubble. He laughs at the rattle of javelins. This animal sounds oppressive. The early, another spot in Job 41 actually talks about fire coming out of his mouth. It sounds almost like a, a dragon, honestly. And, and you read that and you say, okay, was that a literal animal that Job was aware of? Was it something that was really real that he confronted? And, and if so, what kind of animal was it? Again, some of the same people that thought that behemoth referred to a rhinoceros or an elephant uh, think this refers to more like a, a large crocodile, which you could also read that into it. Yeah, some of the descriptors don't exactly seem to match up. Uh, so there are a lot of people, a lot of good people that say, I believe fully that dinosaurs are mentioned in Scripture. It's possible. I, I don't know. Reading this could be, could it be? Yeah, it could be. Is it likely? Probably not. Uh, looking at everything from fossil evidence to, to what we read, is it clear cut that this is a dinosaur it's referring to? No, I don't think so, but it is a, it is a, a possibility, a good possibility. The second question then, then is, if dinosaurs aren't in the Bible, but we're going to believe the Bible, where do dinosaurs fit in? Flip back to the creation story in Genesis chapter 1. This is interesting. Again, another theory that's been proposed that's going to answer a couple of different issues. Because one of the issues, and, and I was reading just this week in a, in a, in a journal someone wrote about dinosaurs, and, and, and these, these scientists, the secular scientists that are out there, say one of the things that we still don't fully understand is we believe the earth is 4.5 billion years old, and the dinosaurs lived, but it seems like their extinction happened, for all of the dinosaurs, their extinction happened in a relatively short amount of time. And I read this guy, and he said, you know, as much as we study dinosaurs, we can't figure out why the extinction happened so quickly. So we've had some ideas proposed. Some of them are good ideas. Some of them are bad ideas. Some of them, I hope they were jokes, because we're not exactly sure why the dinosaurs became extinct in a relatively short amount of time with the consideration of them believing that the earth is 4.5 billion years old. Genesis 1.1, there's this interesting uh, thing that I think sometimes we miss. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, so the first verse in all of Scripture is God creates the heavens and the earth. The first dilemma we have when it comes to Scripture is the very next verse. Because the next verse says, the earth was without form and void. We know that God is a God of creation. We know that God is a God of order. So a bunch of people read that and said, wait a minute, I don't understand this. 
why would God create something in verse 1? God creates the heavens and the earth. And then in verse 2, the earth that he just created doesn't have form and is void. Like, that doesn't make sense to me. Well, there are a couple of, of people over the last couple hundred years that proposed a theory. It's called the gap theory. Uh, it was made most popular in the early 1900s. There was a study Bible that, that a lot of good Christians were using called the Schofield Study Bible. It was made popular by, by C.I. Schofield, but it's a theory that's called the gap theory. And in the gap theory, they believe that between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, there's a gap. We don't know how long the gap is. It could be billions of years old, billions of years of a gap, but there's a gap between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, which brings to light a couple of things. First off, if there's a gap there, we can now fit together what science is saying with, with what the Bible is saying. There could be a gap there that covers millions and billions of years. But also it starts to explain that if in that gap we have prehistory, if in that gap all the prehistoric creatures are, are, are created and, 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 and they roam the earth, and, and eventually there's some sort of cataclysmic event. A lot of people that are proponents of the gap theory say that it, was, it would have been when, when Lucifer and, and the third of all the angels fall, that God brought a cataclysmic event to earth at that point, which resulted in the two big dilemmas we talked about this morning, we, the, the dilemma of how did the dinosaurs become extinct so quickly? Well, there's a cataclysmic event that happens because of God judging Lucifer and the angels, and so it brings uh, the, the extinction of, of the dinosaurs. But it also brings understanding as to why in verse 2, the first part, it says the earth that God had just created, or if there's a gap had been created billions or millions of years ago, now doesn't have form and is void. Again, can you look at Scripture? Because the rest of it says the earth was, was form and, and, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And in verse 3, God said, let there be light, and there was light. And that's when creation, as we know it, really begins. Is it possible that there's a, a gap there? Yeah, it's possible. Do either of these two ideas, are, are, are we dogmatic as a church to say we hold fast that in Job, this referring to a dinosaur? No. It's not clear enough to say that the Bible says this. And do we look at this and say there's this interesting theory out there that seems to reconcile a couple of issues that we have. Does that mean that the gap theory is true? No, it's a theory. A couple of really smart theologians came up with this idea, and it's possible. But I'm, am I going to stand up here as, as, as a pastor and say, this is what we believe? Absolutely not, because both of them are reading into the Bible a little bit. However, I'm a full proponent, I'm a full believer that true science and Scripture are always going to be in harmony. That doesn't mean that what we understand about science, because there are some scientists who become convinced we know this is true, and then years, decades, or centuries later we find out they were wrong. So sometimes our interpretation of science is wrong, and sometimes our interpretation of the Bible is wrong. But true science always accurately reflects the Bible, because we believe, as a church, our basis is the Bible is God's Word. If the Bible is God's Word, it's going to be inerrant, it's going to be infallible, there's not going to be any errors in it. And so if, if science comes out and tries to disprove the Bible, either our understanding of science is wrong or our understanding of the Bible is wrong, but that doesn't mean the Bible itself is wrong. Uh, so am I going to sit here and say dinosaurs are in the Bible? No, we can't say that. Leviathan, behemoth, maybe. Those are good names for dinosaurs. But if not, it doesn't attack at all the validity of Scripture. We're going to shift gears real quick because we're going to go from talking about dinosaurs to talking about relationships. Second question. Yeah, if people are ADD, they're like, this is the best message ever. I can stay focused. 
How do you do relationships well? Oh, boy. <laughs> How much time do we have left? Listen, we did an eight-week series all about relationships called Family Matters. I'd encourage you, if this was you, go back and listen to some of those podcasts. We talk about this a lot. We don't have time to get in all of these. Uh, however, there's two things I do want to say real quick. And, and, and for time purposes, we're just going to kind of list the scripture. I'm not going to have time to go through all of this, but, but there's, there's scripture I want to look at the second part of this. First one, when, how, if, if you're in a relationship right now, and, and maybe you're married or maybe you're dating the other person, a lot of times when we talk about relationships, a lot of times, not always, we're talking about the person we're dating or the person we're married. How do I make relationships work? The first thing, if you're looking to find your contentment in that, in that relationship, if we want our relationships to flourish, find our contentment in God, not in the relationship. For so many of us, we want our full identity to be, identity to be in the other person, and we want them always to make us feel content. And whenever that doesn't happen, what Michael was referring to earlier, why a lot of guys just go up and leave is because they think, I thought life was supposed to be more than this, and I'm not finding my contentment in this relationship any longer, and so let me go leave because I'm going to find someone else who's going to make me content. And they do for a little while. But our contentment is never found in our earthly relationships. However, if I find my absolute contentment in God and not in the relationship then it gives that relationship a chance to really flourish. Because now the pressure isn't on them to make me content. If I ever put the the pressure on anybody to make me feel content, that's an undue pressure that they don't deserve. And they're never going to live up to that standard because I'm never going to live up to that standard. I never meant to make anybody content. But God is. Find our contentment in God. Allow that relationship to flourish. The second thing we talk about relationships where people like to talk about is what about when there's conflict? Not necessarily my, my spouse or not necessarily the person that I'm dating, but what about I'm just at work and there's a person I don't like and they did something really mean to me and I'm hoping like karma gets them back. I understand. We all kind of want that. But I saw someone post this recently where it talks about that, that karma says you get what you deserve but Christianity says that Jesus gets what you deserve. We don't, we don't believe in karma. Jesus died to take away the sting of our sin. And so we're not supposed to hope for people to fail. or We're not supposed to hope for people to mess up. That Even though at times our flesh cries out saying, man, they're going to get what they deserve. They're really mean people. And I can't believe they, they parked in my parking spot. And at the end of the day, who cares about that stuff? But here's the thing. I'm looking at these verses real quick. We're not, we don't have time to look at all these. But in Romans chapter 12, verse 18 to 32, and then again in Proverbs 25, verses 21 to 22, if you have a chance to read those, it talks about how when people do us wrong, the best thing we could do is to love them. The best thing we could do is be nice to them. And when you do that, it's like burning lumps, of, putting lumps of coal on their head. Like it's like that's not what they expect because people, when they're mad and they want you to be mad, they expect you to respond in anger and hostility. Like that's what they want. And when you respond that way, they're getting their wish. And God says, don't do that. It's not worth it because all it's going to do is it's going to escalate. It's going to keep going back and forth. We've got to keep moving on. Uh, third question, how does RPC do communion? Uh, in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 to 28, uh, we have one of the instances of Scripture where it talks about this is what Lord's Supper is about, and we're not supposed to eat, and eat and partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. So here's the deal. A, a while back, for a couple of reasons, a, a long time ago, uh, Ridge Point Church started to do communion in family groups. 
uh, a lot of times our goal as a church is, is to have an inviting place for people to be a part of what's happening. And there's some biblical evidence that they, when they, in the early church, they went from home to home breaking bread. Like there's biblical evidence that, that might have been what they did anyway. So we started to institute where we do Lord's Supper or communion in family groups. And, and that's powerful, and we do that because it brings the family group together. And I'd encourage you as you join family groups this semester to keep doing that. Um, and the second reason we did that is because if you have a visitor come in, and say that you're investing in your neighbor and you really want them to come, and, and they start coming to church, and we say, okay, but communion's about if you're a believer, if you're not a believer, you really shouldn't be doing this. Well, then we also are inviting them in and then saying, we want you to be part of the service, except for this part. <laughs> we don't want you to do that. And for someone who's an outsider, you come in and say, wait a minute. Like, is there some secret club I'm missing out on? How does all that work? So historically, we've not always done communion as part of, of the service on Sunday mornings. Uh, however, I also know that it doesn't always happen in group. Like, just what I've seen and people talking, it doesn't always happen in group. Uh, we did the last couple of years start instituting at our, at our uh, status meetings that we have uh, from time to time on Sunday night. We do communion then. Uh, but we're also going to start not on a weekly basis, but we're going to start on a consistent basis from time to time doing it as part of the service, beginning with next Sunday morning as we kick off this new series uh, for, for the groups and everything with Transformed. So even though it won't be a, a thing we do every week, I don't think biblically that's what you're supposed to do anyway, but, but we're going to do this from time to time as part of the Sunday morning service, uh, also doing it in groups and at status as well, which we have kind of that coming up with Vision 2029. We're about out of time. I have to finish up. Uh, why is no one saying anything about Christians being persecuted around the world? This is a big deal, especially right now. I was reading a couple of different sites and the number of Christians being persecuted changes depend upon, depending upon who you look at. There are certain people that say thousands of people. Uh, the, the one that I went to that seemed the most reliable said that every month, 322 Christians are killed, 214 churches are destroyed, and 772 Christians are dealt with violently. There's a lot of violence in the world. Uh, Christians are probably the most persecuted uh, group that's in the world right now. Uh, even the Pope himself recently addressed this and said that what's happening is a genocide uh, and Christians are the most persecuted group in the world. Uh, a couple of months ago, I had a chance to share in church. Uh, just that weekend, uh, ISIS had taken, I think it's 22 Coptic Christians and had beheaded them because of their faith. And, and when you see things like this, it, it should affect us. It should be, those are our brothers and sisters. Even though they're a world apart, they're our brothers and sisters. That should affect us. That should be something that maybe we don't talk about from week to week, but it should be on our hearts when we start to hear those reports. We start to see, man, this is our chance to pray for them. Uh, one of the areas where it's really being affected is over in Syria. I heard a story recently uh, where a, a, a priest had been taken captive. I believe it was in Syria. A priest was taken captive. And ISIS demanded of his family, who didn't have a lot. It's a family of a priest that doesn't have a lot. They demanded a ransom of $120,000. And the family didn't have $120,000. They said, we need to try to figure out a way because we need uh, this, this guy, a, a son or a cousin or whoever it was. We need this guy released. So we're going to find a way to raise $120,000 to get our family member released. And they did. They raised all $120,000 and sent it to ISIS. And later on, that priest was returned in a box, cut up and killed. Simply because he was out telling people about Jesus. Now, we know that we live, we, you know, we like to be excited and passionate about these things we can get behind, and we hear that, and it isn't exactly a heartwarming story for a Sunday morning. But they're brothers and sisters, and that should be always the forefront of our mind, not to, to bring us down, but to say that this is really happening. 
And we can't just pretend that because it's happening in another part of the world that it doesn't affect us because they are our family. So great question. Last one, I really want to get to this, which is why we're kind of flying through and we are out of time. But let me answer this one question. Matthew 16, verse 28. Let's go ahead and look at that real quick. Matthew 16, verse 28. It says, why did Jesus mean, or what did Jesus mean when he said, some of you standing here will not taste death until you see the Son of Man coming into his kingdom when they have all died? Wasn't Jesus talking about a second coming? So in Matthew 16, verse 28, it says this. Jesus is speaking, and he says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. It's talking about the Son of Man. It's talking about Jesus coming in all of his glory. And so we read that, and, and I agree with the person who asked the question, because it seems like when we read the Son of Man coming in all of his glory, we think that refers to his, his second coming. So we say, well, all the disciples who are there with Jesus, like he hasn't come back yet, and I don't see any of those disciples walking the earth anymore. So what did Jesus mean if he said that some, some of the people here are not going to taste death until I return, until, I, until they see me in all my glory? And it's easy to jump to the conclusion that it's referring to the second coming, but it's not. I think it's a common misconception. But actually in the next chapter, in Matthew chapter 17, it refers to Jesus' transfiguration. And the transfiguration, they're up on the mountain, and Peter, James, and John get to see Jesus' transfiguration. And in that moment, those three disciples got a taste of the glory that's going to come in Jesus' second coming. So I believe in, in, in answering this that it's referring directly to not the second coming, but the transfiguration that literally happens in the next chapter of Matthew. Uh, so I know that one kind of was lumped in a little bit with the end times question. And Chris, I didn't get a chance to get to that. So I did want to address that because that's kind of a big misunderstanding. When I first read it, that was my assumption. Uh, but as, as I read really what's happening there, it's not referring to the second coming but it's referring to the transfiguration that happens in the mouth that Peter, James, and John got a chance to see. We've had some, some great questions throughout the series. Um, I'd encourage you two things. Don't stop asking questions. As we approach Scripture, whatever Scripture it is that we're reading, as we approach Scripture, it should produce questions in our life. Uh, and it's awesome to have a form like this. We don't always have a form like this to answer questions. Uh, so I'd encourage you on your own, seek out answers to questions. If you have those questions, seek out those answers Reach out to us. It might not be in church on a Sunday morning. It might be individually answering a phone call or an email or a face-to-face conversation. But when the Bible says that we are, as, as believers, that we need to be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in us, that's on every one of us, to be able to have the hope that's found in Jesus and have an answer for that hope. So keep asking questions. Keep pursuing those questions. And if the answers aren't as clean as we'd like, that's okay. That's part of our, our faith journey. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I thank you for questions that have been asked that are just things that we're dealing with, life, stuff that's happening, uh, whether it's questions about dinosaurs or relationships, whether it's questions about persecution or, or communion. Uh, God, I thank you that our faith can engage us in so many different areas. And God, I pray that as we leave here, this series has been game-changing for us, that we've been able to, to have answers to some of the questions that we face because we walk out into a world that is full of questions. And we need to have a reason for the hope that is inside of us. And we need to present it with meekness and with fear. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.